Hi, everybody, and thank you for tuning in. Uh, before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the uh, traditional owners, uh, traditional custodians of the lands on which we are here today, and extend my acknowledgement to the elders past and present of all the listeners. Um, you're watching a and listening to a Nurse Break live Q&A webinar interview. And the Nurse Break, for those who don't know, is a platform for Aussie nurses and other health professionals to share insights into their careers and promote interprofessional learning. I'm Jackson. I'll be taking you through this interview with Melanie Robertson today. And uh, thanks for tuning in to what is now our fifth uh, live interview. The last four have gone really well, so go check them out. You can watch them all once they're recorded. If you guys are watching this live currently on the Facebook page, you can put your comments and questions below. And uh, you can listen to this after, of course, on Spotify and Anchor and all the other platforms. Um, just make sure my speaker's working. Uh, what we'll do now is we'll get Melanie on and uh, we'll start. Hello. Hey, Melanie, how are you? I'm just going to do a little super quick introduction. Sure. Uh, so everyone who's listening. So uh, Melanie Robinson is a registered nurse with 18 years of experience, or a little bit more, I think now, um, working in the health system in urban and rural areas across Australia. Uh, she has a wealth of knowledge that we can all learn from. She's worked in hospitals in Derby, Fitzroy Crossing, Perth, uh, and aged care services in Derby, and Dublin and Ireland. Uh, she's worked as a nurse educator at the, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, but the Ma Muditch training facility. And in, oh, okay, good. <laughs> and in policy in the Western Australian Department of Health. Uh, she's also completed a master's in nursing research at the University of Notre Dame in 2018. And she's currently in a nursing research role. Uh, thank you for joining and uh, coming on tonight on a Saturday evening. Thanks, Jackson. Um, before I begin, um, I'd also like to pay my um, respects to the traditional custodians of the lands that we're all on tonight, and there's multiple of them. Um, I have connections to Narinian and Gidja country in the Kimberley of Western Australia, um, and I also have an Anglo-Indian mum as well, so I'm a bit oh, of a yeah. multicultural mix in one. Um, yeah, so thank you for inviting me here, and hopefully I can share some of my knowledge and wisdom with the your members, yep. Yeah, I'm super excited to uh, have you on. I think there's so much uh, we can learn from our Indigenous Australians and our colleagues who are Indigenous Australians. So I guess my first question would be, um, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how did you journey into nursing? Okay, yep. Um, I was um, one of those lucky people. I realised I wanted to be a nurse as a young child, um, probably around seven. It's a good time to make a career decision. Um, very, auntie, very early. <laughs> yeah. My auntie was a paediatric nurse and I don't know, there's just, we've had this connection and we're both, you know, born in the same month and we just had this real bond over um, helping and caring for people, I guess. And, you know, as a seven-year-old, I thought, oh, that's a good career. Well, I didn't think about it as a career as a kid, but that's a good job to have. Um, so I guess then I... That was always my dream. Um, and I've had an interesting journey, you know, growing up as a country kid in a remote, um, we lived on a remote cattle station, which is now a community called Nalagunda up the Gibber Road. If any of your listeners get up there, please have a look around. And yeah, went to we did School of the Air as young kids and we relied on RFDS or Flying Doctor Service for our healthcare because um, up that way, like Northern Australia for 
probably nine months of the year it's dry season and it's good and then um, three or four yeah. months of the year you, you've, it's flooded and you can't get in and, um, yeah. you know, just have an airstrip, I guess, and that's the only way to get healthcare. And all the stations have um, medical tests, so they have all their supplies there and they rely on the RFDS. And back then it was a two-way radio communication. Nowadays they've got wow. phones and internet. Um, so my auntie that lived on the station, so I had two aunties that were nurses, she dealt with all the emergencies up there. Um, mm. She was an enrolled nurse and pretty much had to deal with heaps of really traumatic sort of injuries that you see on a um, a long road that lots of people mm. travel down and have accidents on and, you know, she was the one that had to deal with all that and very tra traumatic as well as a little community to have to um, go through mm. some of the things that we saw even as kids. So... Who who was she employed by? Is it like um, a local health no, so community? Just, she just she didn't have a job. She was just um, had that nursing background, and so everyone uh, yep. went to her for any sort of medical things. Yeah, so they had a really interesting journey, I guess. Yeah, and you would have had quite a lot of exposure with RFDS. I mean, uh, yeah, a lot. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we had they used to have um, vehicle rollovers. You know, young people getting injured with um, mm -hmm. campfire accidents. Um, yeah, just lots of trauma um, up that road and you had to deal with it. I guess it's a bit different now, but, you know, I really admire nurses that work up in those spaces because you don't have all the resources and the equipment and the staff and you're basically on your own or there might be two of you having to deal with that stuff. So, mm. and then we yeah. moved into a town. So we moved into a town called Derby, which is a little place up there. And I went to primary school there and that was a bit of a culture shock. Because Derby, um, I guess it's a big um, Aboriginal community there, but it's a pretty, um, it's a struggling town and it's getting worse now. Um, small towns are really struggling at the moment. And then I went to boarding school as a teenager to a school in Geraldton that's no longer there. Um, oh, okay. With a bunch of, yeah. it was an all girls school, and um, lots of us are all in the nursing profession, which is pretty yep. amazing. Um, and then I went off to Curtin University in Perth, um, basically straight from school into nursing. I just knew what I wanted to do and I loved it from the moment I started. And um, a couple of years ago, WA Health did a campaign and their catchphrase was nursing will take you anywhere and it does. It honestly mm. does. And if I look back at my career, um, I've had so many adventures because of my profession, you know, so that's something yep. to be really proud of. Mm. Takes a girl in a small little community out to the whole wide world. Nursing mm. um, can really do that, can't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so you—that's where you began, and then you went to Curtin, as you mentioned. Now, you were the only Aboriginal student in your cohort. So, I guess, mm. what was it like navigating university, and did you feel culturally safe? Yeah, I think. Um, I don't know. In the 90s, I'm showing my age now, um, there wasn't, um, I guess, what we have now. I think we've come a long way as a country. So there was no such thing as cultural safety or recognition of the different cultures. I know in my cohort um, we had a young Muslim girl. There was probably me and that was probably it. Most of the other students were non, you know, non-Aboriginal or non different cultures they were all kind of white Caucasian people but we had a lot of back then enrolled nurses had to do the full um, Bachelor of, of um, Nursing degree um, it's a bit different okay. now they get some recognition of prior learning and stuff so I had a couple of enrolled nurses that I really bonded with and they'd had lots of experience so 
they were great. But in terms of the university itself, I don't can't fault the teaching or the nursing side, but I guess we didn't learn about different cultures and what that means for patients and families. Um, we didn't back then see colour, you know, everyone was the same and, you know, it wasn't a thing. But I think as yeah. time has progressed, universities have seen now that your culture does make a difference to your healthcare experience. Um, so we learnt a lot about, you know, all the clinical side and all the nurse care planning and all that stuff, but we didn't talk about culture at all. So I guess for me, I had to weave that into every day what I did in class. So it meant I had to have that voice and bring up, you know, different issues and struggles that were going on. Um, most universities have like an Indigenous student centre now, so mm. they have that support. But as students, I was on my own um, and I guess I just love nursing so much it didn't really affect me, I suppose. I just got on with it and... But, yeah, there was no such thing as cultural safety and we definitely didn't do yeah. any additional units on culture and yeah. history. And it was a different you world back then. <laughs> you probably weren't deemed as culturally aware, were you? <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. But the patients um, know who you are, you know, and certainly when I went on to wards, I worked in aged care as an assistant in nursing um, all the way through my course and I would highly encourage any student nurses that are listening to do that because um, it really gives you those basic nursing skills and you're much more confident than when you go into being, you know, registered and having that responsibility. But, yeah, cultural safety wasn't a thing at all back then. Um, but in the last, you know, 30 years, I guess, things have changed in Australia and it has become a bigger thing and that's important, I think, for all Australians. So, And... We'll get back to more about cultural um, awareness and safety and sort of these terms. But you also worked overseas for a few years or a year or so. Can you talk about that quickly? Yeah, um, I I got an opportunity. I had a mad Irish friend who I'm still in touch with now, you know, one of them friends that you don't talk to all the time but they're still really, you know, close to your heart and I still keep in touch with their family through Facebook like everyone. Um, and she said, why don't you come and live in Ireland with me and... So I went over there and worked in a, a little old hospital that was like a rehabilitation unit and I just loved that experience. You know, I love learning about other cultures and other countries and something about the Irish that's extra special. Um, I got to go up into Belfast as well. I had, I've got a good friend who works in the prisons up there and she was one of the girls that studied with me at um, Curtin and just to learn about, I guess, the history of Ireland and that other countries have had their struggles as well, but such an amazing opportunity. Again, if your listeners or, you know, anyone who's, you know, at the moment ready, well, I'm not that you can travel, but, you know, going overseas just opens your eyes to the world and gives you a different perspective, I guess. Um, and my friends were, my Irish friends were interested in Aboriginal culture because they both had lived in Australia. So, they were very interested in the history and the culture and the stories and so I tried to share some of that. Um, and at the time and probably now, they had a lot of um, migrants coming from the Philippines and other countries into Ireland and um, that was a difficult transition for them because, you know, Ireland is usually made up of Irish people and then they had all these um, other groups coming in and that created a real divide in the community. Um, 
I think now they're all integrated, but back then it was a new thing for Ireland to have, you know, yeah, different Mm. groups Mm. living in their country and the language barriers and the issues that come with that. So they loved having me as an Australian, you know, there's always the skippy jokes and stuff, but they really embraced (laughs) having another culture there and learning a bit of the history and stuff. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, so you sort of going back a little bit, you did say about the university saying, you know, treat everybody the same, you know, not to see colour. We don't see colour. Everyone's the same. You know, we provide equal care to everybody. Um, but yeah, I, so that, that's an important point you sort of touched on, I think. And we'll sort of get to that a bit later. But not, I mean, we are all humans, but we're not all equal. No. Um, okay, so I guess... Aboriginals would you would many would agree that Aboriginal nurses are probably the most suitable nurses to provide care to Aboriginal um, patients. Um, I guess didn't have that you know you have that similar cultural background and you can sort of cross those bridges. Health practitioners more generally and those who provide health services, uh, they need to be sort of particularly aware of I guess the historical and cultural and contemporary experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I guess my question is. What are what would you say are the I guess main things uh, that current nurses should be aware of and reflect on? Mm. Um, I think that's a whole session in itself, Jackson. Um, Ma- because, a massive question. Yeah, yeah, yeah massive question. Um, I think the main thing to know, I, what I from what I've experienced is. Um, don't assume about someone's um, identity based on their skin colour. Um, there's a lot in the newer generation, and I'm not a particularly dark person either. Um, I think for nurses to be aware that you can't assume that someone doesn't identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander based on skin colour, that's really important. Um, I think also just to be aware that history is not something in the past, like it is something that is impacting on today. So um, everyone's aware of the assimilation policy and the stolen generation. Um, That's not something that happened a long time ago. That policy ended in the early 1970s when I was born um, and that has an impact now. So I'll share a story of my family um, my dad has um, four brothers, um, four sisters and three brothers and um, they were actually going to be removed by the police. So the police actually came to the cattle station, to the community, mm. and they were going to actually take them away. And my grandfather was a white cattleman and he actually bribed the police, the story goes. And then they had to say that they were Spanish and they were sent off to boarding oh. school. And that has really impacted on them. They're all still alive now. They're all in their hitting their 70s now but they're really traumatized by that and um some days they're black and some days they're not like it's really affected um their sense of self um not only the loss of culture and language as well that happens with that assimilation policy because um kids were forbidden then from speaking language from practicing culture so what I say to people is that you might think that is in the past, but it's actually having an effect now. And that trauma that happened to them then gets passed down through our generations and our children as well. So I think for all our nurses and for Australians, it's really important to know that those stories are still impacting to this day. Um, you know, they're still issues for now same as I guess racism is still an issue today as well we don't 
We're seeing a bit less of the racism because it seems like it's more being targeted now to the different African and Muslim groups that are coming through. But racism is still a thing. Um, It's always been around in Australia. Maybe, you know, 30 years ago it was more out in the open, which sometimes I think is a good thing if, if you're racist, be open about it. Now it's a bit more hidden. It's a bit more overt. It's a bit more under the radar. And um, I guess as a black woman, sometimes I'll think, oh, that doesn't sound right, but am I just being sensitive? Because I think what happens yeah. to our community is they become hypervigilant and then they're always like everything's like, oh, this could be, you know, racism. Um, but it is a thing. And what I would say to people is, I guess as nurses, we need to know how that history, how those issues are impacting on the community now because we want to be able to deliver the care that we need to give and be understanding of people when they come into our clinic or our health service or our hospital, you know, that they have all the, they carry all this baggage, you know. They could be affected by stolen generation. They could be affected by um, past government policies. They could be affected by policies now, you know, that are happening as well. Um, And this is generational trauma. Yeah, I heard a story of an emergency department screening Aboriginal patients for sexually transmitted infections, STIs, Um, and one of the nurses who's Aboriginal said, why are you doing that? Like, why aren't you screening everybody? STIs are not just an Aboriginal thing. They're across the whole community. But this ED had this specific policy where they were screening only the Aboriginal patients. So um, these things sort of happen and it's not, I don't think it's, it's just ignorance. I don't think people deliberately be unkind or nasty. Mm. I just think Mm. they don't think about it, you know, that um, there's things that go on that affect everybody. And I think this big push, like, yeah, this is the year of Captain Cook coming to Australia. (laughs) Yay. Great. Thanks, Captain Cook. Um, He explored all the East Coast and he was actually a really good cartographer. I don't know if people know that. Um, There's a show on at the Canberra... um, at the um, Federal Museum at the moment about telling the parallel stories, so what it was like for the Aboriginal communities of those um, places that he visited as they went up the coast. Um, Very interesting because it sort of contrasts the two stories and um, within that story there was when he came into Sydney Harbour, there were these three water spouts and apparently one water spout is not a good omen but when there's three, that's a really bad omen. So as oh, okay. you go into this display, there's these three water spouts and the story of what those water spouts mean. Um, and I think for me, even with um, boat people, I don't understand our government's stance on boat people and that we just leave them off in an island and, you know, do our immigration policies because I think... Most of us come from boat people. Do you know what I mean? We all came on boats um, yeah. at different times. My mum came on a boat from England. She was a 10-pound mm. bomb on a boat. Um, so why are we yeah. making people wait on an island and deciding if they're good for our country or not, you know? They should be allowed yeah. to come in. And if they've come all that way on a boat and spent all that money, doesn't that show that they really want to be here? So I've never understand it, understood this government's policies on um you know, asylum seekers, and I know there's differing views on that, but I think if someone really wants to come to this country and we've got a very good country, then why can't we share that, you know? And I think that's what's always bothered me about our community and I guess we were raised with that real sense of social justice. So it doesn't matter who you are, if I see something that's not right, I'm going to call it out, I'm going to hold people to account. And I think we should all 
as nurses, I think we're pretty good at that. I think we're pretty good at standing up and advocating and, you know, being there for our patients. So, Okay. So sort of taking a little bit of a different tone, but more, this is so not talking exactly about what we just mentioned there, but so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders view health quite differently to, mm-hmm. uh, um, I guess you could say, the Western model of health, I guess. And they don't recognize, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't recognize uh, mental or physical health uh, as distinct sort of medical modalities or conditions. Rather, you know, health and medical and physical health is, mental health, sorry, is sort of a more holistic uh, approach. And, you know, it's considered in relation to community, lands, family, and spirituality. Whereas the Western model sort of denies that a holistic aspect and sort of ignores the emotional, spiritual, and social sort of elements that are underneath, you know, the presenting problem. So I guess the question that I'm getting to is how does the Western medical model promote hierarchy and separation of indigenous populations? And I know it's a big question. A second aspect to it is um, uh, what is the Torres Strait Islander worldview of health? Okay. Um, I think it's always good Lost connection to look at, yeah, you did, you did drop in and out, but that's okay. We're professionals. Um, I think it's really important to understand that the difference in the view, so the Western view versus the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander view, is around how we view ourselves. So in the Western way of thinking, and this is not for all cultures but for majority, um, they see themselves as that individualism kind of model about yourself, you know, your family, looking after yourself, whereas in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, it's actually the collectivism view. So it's about the whole community and the whole family. So I think what happens with health is, um, we view it very different. So if the community is striving and they're doing well and they're, you know, managing well, then everyone feels good. Whereas in, um, I guess, the Western way, you're thinking about yourself and your family. I've also always teach people that for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, health is not a priority. You know, for most non-Indigenous people, health is high up on their list of important things they do. So for our community it's way down on the list. It's way below, you know, family obligations, cultural obligations, other commitments. So I think that makes it different. So say I always give this really simple example that if you've got a little bit of money left and you need to buy food for your family versus buying your medication for your chronic disease, you'll buy the food for your family. You won't put your health first. It's a real simplistic example, but I think it really explains that difference um, and I always go back to the definition that um, the National Aboriginal um, Community Controlled Health Organisation says is that um, it's not just about physical well-being of the individual but it's also about the social emotional and cultural well-being of the whole community so if a community is doing well then that's really important for the individual and I think what becomes difficult is past experiences with a particular service so Um, If a family member has passed away in that service, that makes it really difficult for that person to go into that, you know, health store or health service and access it. So um, a few years ago I had an enrolled nursing student who um, was going on a placement in a big hospital at home in Perth and she was freaking out and I was like, what's wrong with you? Like, what's going on here? And 
the ward she was actually going to, her grandfather had died there 12 months before and she was in a complete panic. So I did a lot of work with her, working through what that experience was like, what was good about it, what she didn't like about it, and we talked through a lot of it. But then what I had to do was just convince her to go and have this different experience as a nurse. And she went in and she had the best placement and she saw a different side and she actually felt good about it. But it would have been really easy for her to say, I'm not going, I'm not doing it, you know. And I think hospitals and systems create this fear and this anxiety and they do it for everyone. I don't care who you are. If you have a bad experience, it stays with you, especially if you lose a loved one in a in a hospital. Um, but for our community, there is that real fear, um, especially for the older ones. They're scared of doctors, like they won't ask questions, they won't speak up when they don't understand something. You know, they get really worried because they have a lot of respect for the hierarchy in the system, you know, like doctors are like mm. the top of the chain. You know, nurses also talk a different language, like there's that real medical jargon and the lingo that we talk and they don't understand. And then add on to that, that cultural difference as well makes it really challenging, I think, to go into a service and feel confident and be able to ask questions and be able to advocate. So what you'll often see is um, when people are coming in, they might get really aggressive, they might be abusive, and sometimes that's connected to their fear and their anxiety of past experiences and and that Western model of care as well. Um, You know, it's a different way of viewing the world. Um, And I know in nursing we talk a lot about holistic care, caring for the whole person, but I think more and more over the last 30 years I feel like we've become more specialised and more disease-focused and we've really gone down that medical road um, and I think for us as nurses, it's time to go back to what we are about, which is more than just the disease or the illness. It's actually about the whole person, what's going on for them, what's going on in their life. But as we become more specialised and more technological and all that stuff, I think we've got forgotten, you know, who we are as a profession and what we're there for as well. Um, and I'm all for you skills, know. you know, so... yeah. I've worked in EDs yeah. and ICU and all that. I love all that, you know, machinery. Like I think there was a post on your nurse break one with all the pumps and things and I get all excited. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Veins <laughs> or whatever. But. Yeah, I put a photo of a um, some nice juicy veins for people and to mm. pump some uh, cannulation tips up. But um, yeah. I think what you said, I think it's true. I mean, medicine, uh, the... Medicine has been broken into so many modalities. You know, you have orthopedics and, you know, oncology, like, you know, that those nurses and those doctors only focus on that sort of issue. Mm. Uh, missing the bigger picture, I guess, is what you're sort of trying to say. Mm. Um, I guess sort of following on from this is that, okay, so we've sort of agreed that medicine is very Western-centric, white-centric, you could say, and sort of ignores a lot of other cultures and and lived experiences that exist i guess science isn't culturally bound and it's been around for a long time before australia was colonized mm-hmm. and and therefore healing isn't uh, either it isn't culturally bound either so i guess how do we blend the best of aboriginal science which is at times not measurable and not verifiable well, it's measurable and verifiable in different ways to you know modern med- western science yeah. so i guess my question is how do we bring Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture back into medicine and nursing? Mm. 
Well, there's some interesting, I don't know if your um, followers know about um, the Nunkiri healers from the Central Desert. So South Australia Health now um, have a, I don't know, it's like an item number, I guess, and they actually get paid to come into the service and they're not just about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients. They'll see anybody. And the healers come in. They don't do heart or um, renal kidney stuff, um, but they'll do anything else. And they do traditional mm. healing on them. And mm. there is no science behind mm. that, which has always been tricky. But the um, South Australian Health System has embraced it. And they actually come in and do these healing sessions with the patients. And they're seeing, mm. um, I guess, I don't know, it's really hard to describe, but it, it seems a bit like um, Reiki to me. But it's 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 totally different. But it's, it's that similar sort of process. And they do this healing and they're really getting results with it and they're travelling all up and down well prior to COVID, all up and down um, the APY lands and into South Australia as well. So I think mm. one thing I want to say is that, um, you know, in the health system, if we could embrace these alternate models, and I know we're very sciencey and that's really difficult for us, mm. but if a patient says to you, I want to see a Nunkery healer, then we should make that happen. Like, do you know what I mean? We should allow that and the health system should allow that. Um, patients use alternative medicine all the time. We just don't ask them. Um, I know yep. quite a few um, cancer patients that use the maroon bush tea. You can buy it online now and you brew it up. It comes in bags or you can get the leaves. Um, and that has really good medicinal properties, not just for cancer but for other conditions as well. So I think more and more we're seeing um, the local communities are writing down what's available and also sharing that, but they're starting to use it as well. So I know patients that come from remote areas, some of the communities are starting to create ointments and other things that can be used um, as part of a complement, I think, with um, traditional medicine as well. Yep. Um, I think the yep. two should go hand in hand, and I think we've got to be more open to that. And I think we're now asking patients, you know, what are you using um, so we can check that there isn't any interactions or issues with that. Um, but I think we need to be more embracing because people are going to use these things and we might not even know about it, you know. So there's a lot of work going on. Um, there is fear in the community, genuine fear. Um, they don't want pharmaceutical companies and others getting a hold of these um, recipes and I guess making them into a multi-million dollar business. They want to keep it protected. So some of the communities... Um, are happy for these things to be used for people from that community but they won't share it with others because they're really nervous that some big company is going to take it off. And I guess we've seen that with purple ointment and lavender and other things where they've just made it into a massive market, you know. So I think we've got to balance that cultural respect but also embracing that some of these traditional healing methods have merit in our system. They're not going to cure everything and you still got to use your mainstream treatments, but, you know, they complement in a way. Complement, yeah. Um, you know, and there's things as nurses that we can use that will help us as professionals as well, you know, like you see now with mindfulness and yoga and things like that. I think that makes mm. you a better clinician if you start taking on board some of those, you know, different mm. ways of doing things, yeah. Are you no, able to to sort of uh, mention it? what are the traditional healers? There's healing songs and the sort of bush medicine. Can mm. you? Is there any other examples you can think of the top of your head? Um, um, where they complement? Oh, mental health. Um, the I, I always talk West Australian context. Sorry, everyone, but that's where I'm from. But um, that's in where you're the, from. 
yeah, Mental Health Act over there, um, they actually, so some of our community, when they get diagnosed with a mental illness, there is a cultural component to that. So they can actually be, um, it's called being sung. So if you've done something wrong, it's like a punishment, I guess. And okay. what they've started saying in the Mental Health Act is that um, they can get like a, a medicine man, um, that different communities call them different things, but basically a medicine man, and they'll come in and actually do um, like this whole session with someone who's a mental health patient just to check it's not actually a punishment or they've been sung to find out if there's okay. something else going on as well. So that's another thing I've, I'm aware of. Um, I think there is a lot of stuff out there and, like I say, patients might not be telling you unless you ask them those questions. You know, are you using any sorts of alternative medicine or traditional medicine? Mm. I think it's a really important question to ask and be comfortable to ask that question as well. So, Okay. So for Indigenous health workers, I guess, how do they sort of navigate from your experience, nurses in particular, how do Indigenous nurses navigate the Western medical model so that sort of dismisses that traditional form of healing? Yeah, it's 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 really tricky because <clears throat> I guess, you know, you're wearing different hats all the time. We all do. But, you know, obviously being Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander or both um, and then being a nurse or a midwife or, you know, whatever profession you're in, I think it's really tricky sometimes because families will tell you things that they don't want anyone else to know and you've got to kind of weigh up, I guess, a bit like a lawyer, weigh up, you know, whether this is relevant or whether we should share. Um, I think it's really difficult um, and I see a lot of burnout in our population of nurses anyway um, because you're trying to balance and the further out you get and the remoter you get, it gets really difficult. So if someone passes away or you're involved in their care, um, the community look on that in sort of a negative light. So you're trying to balance, I guess, your cultural responsibilities but also be a clinician and it's really tricky to do both. Um, but really important, I think, that we are represented in the system but how do you balance out your cultural obligations as well? So I'll give you an example. Um you know, as an Aboriginal woman, I've got to be careful when I'm nursing Aboriginal men, especially old elders and traditional okay. men. Um, yep. So I had a patient, um, real old traditional guy, didn't speak a word of English from the Central yep. Depot, um, and was really unwell and they couldn't work out what was going on. And um, I went and kind of just sat with him and he we couldn't communicate because we didn't speak language and back then we didn't have interpreters for Aboriginal languages mm. like we do now. Um, but I can't shower that man because that wouldn't be appropriate, you know, and it sort of leads into that men and women's business that we're going to talk about later. But I had to be really careful because I'm a woman and he's a traditional man and there's limits with that. And we see that sometimes with our young men that are going through mm. law. So law is when um, they go from being a boy to being a man. So there's all this process they go through. Um, okay. And you've got to be really careful because those young men aren't allowed to be alone with women. Like they're, you okay. know, they're going through law to become a man and there's strict rules around that. And our professions are majority women. So imagine mm. that patient having a mental health issue and you're trying to deal with that and you're a woman and you're not supposed how, to talk to him, you know. So how, how does that get dealt with? Like how, um, so yeah, how, so does, how does that work? Sometimes they'll ask for a male clinician um, and that's okay within reason. 
But what they'll do is they'll make sure that um, like their, their dad or another man will be present and you've got to ask certain questions and there's things you can't ask. So they'll tell you that, you know, there's some things you can't ask and, um, and it's very tricky to navigate and it's very tricky for that patient, you know, especially a young man who's, you know, under strict rules and laws and things, yeah. So so if a, a female nurse in Australia decided to go rural and remote for, for a few months somewhere in an Aboriginal community, do is this something that they will face when they look after yeah. male patients? Yeah, absolutely, yep. Mm. And I think there's ways around it. I think you've got to be really respectful. And I know we all are, I think, of different genders when we're caring for them. But, um, yeah, like I wouldn't go into a shower with an older man without getting consent and, you know, you do all the right things and stuff. Yep. But if they refuse, then you've got to respect that as well. And that's really hard when you're trying to do your job and trying to get yep. things done. So it's just about balancing the two. But I think if you are going into rural and remote areas, to be really mindful that um, there's still a lot of those traditional practices going on. So often what the service will do is do some sort of training initially so you're aware of what those things are, you know, and what they mean yep. as well. So, so okay, so you're okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, there are these cultural practices such as caring for country, um, death and grief, which is, I think, sorry business, mm. um, law and law, as you mentioned, and men's business mm. and women's business. So what – let's sort of tackle each of these separately, but what is uh, sorry business um, firstly? Yep. Um, so sorry business is – it's even before someone passes away. So if there's been like a an accident or some sort of injury, it sort of kicks in straight away and it goes through the whole process from when they pass away and beyond as well. So different communities kind of practice it a bit different. Um, yep. There's um, the whole process. So if you've got a patient in a hospital, a lot of family and community will come to that hospital and that's sometimes challenging when you don't have the space mm. to host all those people and we have strict rules you know in intensive care and ed and stuff about how many people can visit and you might end up with 50 visit, 60 yeah. 100 people turn up you know and how do you manage okay. that um wow. that's the beginning of that sorry business when someone does pass away and particularly if they pass away off their country that's a big deal um that's a really big deal for the community so there might be practices that come with that um one of the things that we see a lot with sorry business is the smoking ceremony. So often um, their house or wherever they've lived, they'll actually smoke it traditional way and that's about releasing that spirit as well. Um, obviously in a hospital if they pass away, that's really difficult to do. You can't smoke the hospital but they'll do some sort of ceremony. Um, some communities will cut some hair and take some hair with them. Um, some will want... Um, you know, different things done and they'll tell you what they need um, in terms of that. And then what sorry business is, I guess it's a bit like, you know, that grieving and that funeral process that um, most people go through, but it's mm. sort of a bit bigger than that. So with sorry business, there's kinship obligations. So about who goes to the funeral, how long they stay around, how, who they support in the family. Like there's all these sort of rules that are mm. different in every community, but, you know, just to be aware of. And then it goes through the whole funeral and there might be a period of time after. Um, I always use the example of saying someone's name. 
So when someone passes away, some communities will not say their name again for a long time. It's the same with photos as well. They won't show images of that person for a long time and that's all part of that sorry business. Um, people often ask me, you know, when you see presentations and TV shows, why do they put up that warning saying this contains images of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people who may have passed away? Well, that's all part of that warning. Um, there is a whole protocol on how long before you can say someone's name, show the image, um, all that sort of stuff. And you might never say it again, like, um, you know, that amazing singer from the Territory from Elko Island that died, you know, a year ago. Um, we still don't say his name. Like you'll see him mentioned as Dr G or okay. his surname. Like people really careful of that. And that's until the community yeah. says now you can use his name and his image, but out of respect okay. there's a period with that. Um, so sorry business is quite complicated. Um, there's obligations on who goes to the funeral um, and what I often see with the workers that I support that are Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, they are getting called to lots of funerals. So what some families will do is say, we'll nominate these people to represent our family because obviously if you're working, you can't always be going to funerals and stuff. Um, the more important that person is to that community, the bigger the funeral is. So a big funeral, you could have three or 400 people come to a funeral. And, I mean, that's a real shock, I think, for non-Indigenous people to understand that. Like all these yeah. people just come from everywhere. And the yeah. more important they are, the more people there are that come okay. to that. Um, there's also some trickiness around sorry business as well. Um, if there's something that's happened and an Aboriginal person has caused the death of another Aboriginal person, there could be some sort of punishments around that as well and some sort of payback. Um, a few years ago I did some training with some palliative care nurses and they were really upset because there was a young Aboriginal guy dying in their service and no one came to visit. But what I had to explain to them was he'd actually been in a motor vehicle accident and someone had died and basically under... Um, tribal way they weren't allowed to visit that's actually their punishment wow. so it's not that they didn't want to visit they were they were told by the community and by the elders by the who elders. weren't allowed to visit him because that's his mm. punishment you know so it's really wow. difficult to understand when you haven't grown up in that world and you're like he's dying like why can't we go see mm. him you know so it's very complicated but it's essentially someone dying and then passing away and that process of grieving that goes on but it's different in every community wow. as well you know so it sort of changes between each community as well yeah yeah and that's if you do go into a rural and remote and even in the city hospitals because patients come down to the city um mm. ask the family what they want to do what their process is you know how yeah. they want to keep connected to their country because dying off country is a big deal for Aboriginal communities um, mm. and Torres Strait communities as well. So um, over the last 30 years, what we've pushed a lot of the doctors to say is rather than retrieving someone and taking them to the city, do we really need to do that? Are they going to, you know, is their treatment, are they going to survive? If not, keep them on country, keep them mm. dying where their family can all be around them and where they feel safe as well. So I notice now... Um, a lot of patients aren't being transferred to the city if there isn't a good outcome or prognosis connected to that, and that's a do good you, thing. Do you find advanced care plans are a thing used in Aboriginal communities? Is that something that's It's a bit like worm donation. I don't think we've done enough to promote it. I think it would be a thing that community would be interested in, but I think we need to do more work. It's a bit like 
I'll say to people, palliative care is a bit the same. It's what we call mm-hmm. it because people think mm-hmm. of palliative, oh, you've given up, you're dying. But palliative is actually really beneficial for lots of people. Um, so I think advanced care planning is something we should be talking about with our communities. Um, I don't think we've done enough work in that space, Jackson, and I don't have a view on it because we haven't talked to enough community yet about it. But I think it's really important. And I know renal patients, they're starting to use that advanced care planning with them, you know, mm. and talking about your options and do you want to be doing dialysis for the next 30 years, you know. And, I mean, so, that's that's another whole topic as well. How do we do yeah. this dialysis in rural and remote areas? Um, for, Just for everyone who's watching this, guys, you can still post your comments on Facebook. There's a few people who are. So if you've got questions for Mel, and you want me to ask them, um, just pop down any of your questions. Uh, this is the one and only time we can do that. Um, uh, so to the next sort of part of the question is, what is men's business? Yeah. And and I guess what would a non-Indigenous nurse need to know about these sort of things? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is that real gender difference. Um, I certainly know men and women don't like being put in the same room together. Um, and I think in our hospitals now we put everyone in one spot which we can't we don't have this a space to put different space. genders in different yeah um that's really difficult especially for the older men and women so there is a real separation um in communities there is some things that only men talk about and there's things that only women talk about and they're two separate things and they cannot cross over um okay. so just to be aware i think when you're nursing patients and like i was saying with that old man um, I knew that as an old man and me as a woman that there was some things that we couldn't talk about even though we couldn't communicate. But, you know, I had to be really careful of that because there is topics that are separate. So what we'll often do if we're educating about um, STIs or, you know, something specific to a gender, we won't, we'll make sure no men are there because um, there is that sort of sense of shame and embarrassment but also there's yeah. some things that should be kept separate as well. Um, so it is a thing. Um, and same for men, being a woman, you know, you've got to be mindful of that. And I think there's enough male nurses, not enough male nurses yet in our profession, but there's some coming yeah. through. Um, so you're able to do that. But obviously when you've got a patient load, you can't be, you know, you've got to do what you can do. But just be mindful of it, I think, to be aware that you know, some men get really embarrassed if there's a woman in the shower with them or talking about um, something to do with the men's, you know, bits or whatever it is, you know, just to be mindful of it. Um, not that sometimes you can't do anything about it, but just to be aware that there is a difference and there is deep embarrassment and shame connected to that conversation mm. being had as well. So just gauging, I think just to be mindful as nurses of people's body language and what they're not telling you and just watching their face and how they are when you're talking about things and then you know oh I shouldn't really be going down this road I might need to get yeah. someone else to have this yeah. conversation with them yeah okay. and I guess that's sort of the same for women's business just the opposite yeah. gender yeah. yeah okay um well before we got some more questions we'll go to some questions that some people have posted do you know what we've been doing we've been yarning we've so been we've got <laughs> So I totally missed all that. Oh, just cut no, out. Sorry. Sorry. Was that? I was just saying we were having a yarn. It seems like it goes around in circles, but it comes back at the end. It's called yarning. No, I love it. Good. I love I love a good yarn. Yeah. <laughs> um, Libby Murray has asked you. I'm a mental health nurse. Mm. I have seen Anna. Sorry, Anna I don't Goody, know how to pronounce Anna that. Goody, yep. 
Anagu, who were sung. Uh, it is very hard to watch in the mm. deterioration. Is there something as we as practitioners able to do? So can you just quickly go back again and explain what is being sung? What does that mean? Yes. It's kind of like a punishment. Um, they might have done something wrong, so they might have had a relationship with someone they shouldn't have because of the skin groups. Um, it says mm. who you can have relationships with. And basically it's um, like a, a traditional kind of punishment, I guess, and it can make someone really sick. Um, mm. I think as a practitioner it's really frustrating to watch because you're trying to manage symptoms but you don't really know what the cause is, so how can you really treat it? Um, mm. I think one of the things you can do is get in touch um, and try and find a traditional healer, try and find a medicine man or someone that can come in and intervene. But mm. if it's a punishment from the community, there's probably nothing you can do and that person will probably pass away and that's really hard to watch, definitely. Um, but mm. it doesn't mean you can't try and, you know, we always want to help our patients. So I would, I would be getting in touch with their elders and saying, what can I do here? You know, what's this about? Um, you know, why, why is this happening sort of thing? So, yeah, there's not a lot you can do, but you can try and reach out and see if someone will come and visit that patient and give them some, you know, traditional healing. Mm. Okay, I think that's some really, really solid advice. Libby has also asked another question. I won't pop it up because it's a very long one. It will cover us, okay. our faces. But she has said that we don't have enough nurse, male, nurse, male nurses in the communities to fulfil... Uh, Took Turpa, sorry, T, I can't pronounce that, I'm really sorry, um, especially in aged care. I'll put it up so you can see. Um, okay. Uh, especially in aged care and looking after the male elders. So female nurses have to do the ADLs, young females mostly. I don't think this mm. is appropriate. I feel more Indigenous employment of males should be encouraged. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think, you know, males are under, underrepresented, underrepresented in our mainstream anyway, but also in our Aboriginal population. Um, mm. potential solutions are that assistant in nursing workforce, you know, yep. that being promoted as a pathway. I think our boys are even more behind the mainstream boys in seeing nursing as a pathway. Um, and I think mm. there's lots of work to do there as well. But I think, you know, when you're working in that sort of aged care space, it's really difficult um, to get, you know, that gender balance. And I think you've just got to do what you can do to sort of maintain people's privacy and dignity in that space, you know. Is aged care prominent in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? I mean, I'm going to assume there's not many facilities. Well, like, is, is the care provided by, with, by families or? Yeah. Um, what we see is that more families keep people in the home. It's a bit like, um, reminds me of Indian, you know, families and also Vietnamese. They tend to keep their oldies at home more. Um yeah. Same in our communities in saying that some of the oldies are neglected because people don't have the mm. skills to look after them. Um, but I think we have got some dedicated aged care services. Um, again, staffing them has always been an issue. Um, but lots of our mob don't make it past 55, 60. You know, they're dying from chronic disease and diabetes and yep. renal failure and stuff. Um, yep. But we do have more people getting older and older. Um, they tend to be a bit more independent and when they do need care, they tend to go into the high care services. But, again, the further you go out, there is dedicated services that are specifically for our population as well. Um, so, so, 
So I sort of wanted to ask, so we sort of mentioned, you mentioned a lot, uh, earlier that, you know, health is definitely low on that priority for, for many in, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Do you think that's a good thing or is there a way to, you know, rank it a little bit higher? Do we need to do that to, you know? Mm, I think as a community, we definitely need to push it up the chain. Um, I talk to a lot of people about, you know, if you, if you don't care for yourself, how can you care for others, you know? You need to put your health as a priority. I know with the close the gap prescriptions, it meant um, it means that medications are more affordable. So um, if you identify as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, your GP can write you a close the gap CTG script, and then you get it at that pension rate if you've got a chronic disease. Um, that's made it more important. But I think as a community, we need to educate more about the importance of health and looking after your health as well. And balancing that okay. with your cultural and your other obligations too. Um, I think it's always going to be like this. I don't know. Um, it's just a different view of the world, I guess. But, yeah, you're right. We need to have more of these conversations um, so we can encourage people to look after their health and well-being. So. Mm. We'll go to another question by Ben Jenkins. Ben has asked, well, has said, loving this episode. So thanks, Ben. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Do you have any strategies when caring for an Indigenous patient's family in the critical care setting? How should I modify my language to deliver the information of what is happening? It's an um, awesome question, Ben. That's a great question, yeah. Um, critical care is um, scary and overwhelming for anybody, as all of us critical care nurses know. Um, I think... There's a lot you can do and you're probably already doing it then, um, you know, in terms of making sure families are prepared for what they come in and what they see. You know, a patient mm. in a critical care space doesn't look like the person they know. You know, they often the got a lot of fluid yep. and they look mm. yeah, different. They've got tubes and machines. So doing that initial preparation and really keeping the family informed about what's going on, um, having those family meetings and with our community, there might be one person who they nominate as that sort of spokesperson that you can talk to and explain what's going on. But having those regular daily meetings, um, if language is an issue, it might be worthwhile engaging an interpreter. And there's lots of um, Aboriginal interpreting services now that you can get in touch with um, just to get some of the key messages across to the families as well. So making sure to be mindful if English is a second language that you do engage those services. Um, we talk a lot of jargon, and we talked about this before, you know, Jackson, that we need to make sure how we communicate is understood by the person who's sitting in front of us, and we do talk a lot of jargon. Um, what's really good mm. as well, if you can do it, is those images and photos from home as well. Um, I'm not sure how accessible they are, but, you know, and now we've got everything on our phones and things. But ways yep. you can sort of make people feel more comfortable. I always find hospitals are very white and very plain. And so, you know, if, if they can, you know, hospitals should be putting up artworks and images. A hundred percent. Posters and things to make people feel comfortable, and I know you've got to balance out that infection control side with the, you know, what's makes I've, it comfortable. I've, and I've, but I've never understood why they're so ugly and so white, yeah, and why we yeah. can't make them colourful and fill the corridor with the, artwork. You know, the blood and the poo and all the other stuff we see. Like, and we have all these white uniforms and white hospitals. You know, well, we don't have white uniforms anymore. But um, yeah. you know, I think 
things like the Koori Mail, having that around in the waiting room so families can look at that. Just anything, posters, images. Um, you've got to be careful with images, I guess, of people if they've passed. But, you know, definitely paintings and other things. And I know a lot of hospitals are now investing money in purchasing artworks and stuff. And, you know, for an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander person, coming in that room and seeing an image, even if it's not from their country, is really um, powerful and really important. Um, keeping your language simple, making sure people understand what you're saying, you know, what you're, what you're telling them about their loved one's condition, you know, making sure they understand what that means. Um, keeping connected with their community. So if they've come off country to come into your critical care space, how do you maintain that contact with their family as well and their, and their, their local medical service? You know, they might be in an Aboriginal medical service or another service that they use. How do you maintain that communication of what's going on? And then that's really critical with the discharge planning as well. Um, but critical care is a scary space for anybody. It's just making people feel comfortable and I find I've got to say, you know, in my time in critical care and also nowadays when I work talk to families that have been in that space, um, they do we do a good job, I think, given the circumstances that we're in. We do a lot to support families in critical care and make them feel comfortable yep. and stuff, you know. My dad had an overnight in ICU two years ago and the staff were wonderful to us. They were really amazing. So just making sure people understand what's going on, they're being communicated with and they're being included in the conversations, but keeping the jargon down to a minimal and just talking, you know, plain English is really good. Um, and, yeah, if we can make that environment a bit more welcoming as well, that's good, a bit of colour, you know, a bit of, you know, I don't know, it's really tricky because of infection control and you've got to wipe everything down and stuff, but, you yeah. know, making it a bit more friendlier is good. It sort of sort of reminded me to ask this question. I guess the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, has sort of exposed the uh, vulnerabilities or and inequality, I guess, between non-Indigenous and the Indigenous, you know, in regards to, I guess, overcrowding, overcrowded housing and, mm. you know, the difficulties with isolation. Um, and I guess, you know, an over-reliance on Centrelink, uh, chronic disease, substance abuse and all these things. And I guess that would, um, you know, result in more critical care presentations. H how has COVID-19, I guess, impacted uh, you and your community from your experience? Yeah. I've got to say, considering all things, we haven't had that many um, infection rates, which has been fantastic. And I think a lot of that's to do with the public health messaging and the way um, the country as a whole has dealt with this. Um, different states and territories have sort of done it different, but I know in terms of the overcrowding, when someone has been diagnosed, they've made alternate arrangements to keep them in that sort of isolated space away from the family and stuff. Um, one of the biggest issues, I guess, that it's highlighted is the issues around food security. And I know the Commonwealth Government are doing some work to look at um, the remote stores and the pricing. Um, I don't know if you've seen, but like, you know, a six pack of toilet roll might cost you 38 bucks in a remote community, you know. So, you know, whereas down the street it's maybe $6 or $4, you know. So they're looking into yeah. all that pricing stuff. I think it's highlighted the strength in our community. So um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peak bodies have done a lot of work around messaging and making sure the messages are delivered in a culturally safe way um, that's understandable. And that's really made a difference. Um, 
community have talked a lot about a lot of confusion between Commonwealth messages and their state and territories. There's been a bit of a clash there, and that's a lesson, I guess, for all of us to learn post-COVID, that um, how we communicate is really important and what messages we're telling people are really important because it starts getting confusing for people. But I think as a community as a whole, we've just stepped up and gone we're going to take care of the business ourselves. Um, I've got to hand it to the Aboriginal Medical Services. They've done a super job. You know, they've opened respiratory clinics. They've been doing screening. Um, they've been doing a process as patients come through clinics. Um, it's been yep. really well managed. Um, I don't think um, we could have done much different. I, I don't know, being a policy person, I think um, public health policy on the run is sometimes tricky and I'll use the example of, you know, um, elective surgery being cancelled but then no one thinking about, you know, there's 6,000 nurses that work in elective surgery and, oh, no, they'll have no work now. Um, so sometimes that public health policy is for the greater good but it, people don't think about the impact that's broader. But I think in terms of our communities, we've done quite well. Where we've sort of fallen over is some of the border restrictions and the movement because staff haven't been able to get out to remote communities and towns to work and replace other staff who maybe, you know, need a break or whatever. Um, access to PPE has been a massive issue and I don't think that's just an issue for our community. I think it's been an issue across Australia. Everywhere. Um, mm. But, yeah, I think we've done really well considering how quick it all happened um, and we haven't had any cases. We've had some in the Kimberley, but we haven't had any in any of the remote communities, which is fantastic. It's great. Um, and that was all to do with border restrictions and making people isolate when they go into communities and stuff. And we have had some cases in the urban areas, but they've managed it really well. Um, my biggest worry, and I said it to all the government meetings I've been to, is um, management of chronic disease. So, you know, that's sort of fallen over because um, people aren't going to their GPs and aren't going to get that care that they need. And I'm really worried about chronic disease management and what that means when you're not taking care of your chronic disease. But also I think I'm worried about the mental health of our frontline healthcare providers but also our community as well, you know, especially the communities that had bushfires and then had pandemic but also communities that have had pandemic you know, I really worry about that isolation and what that's done to people. And I know the rates of alcohol use have gone up and that's not a good thing because then there's often family violence and other things that come mm. with that. So I think COVID yeah. has really tested us. But i got to say mm. we have an amazing healthcare system and if we didn't have all those, the public health legislation and stuff, we could not have kicked in as good as we did and we've done a really good job. So... And I think certainly yeah. for our community, we're pretty proud mm. that the infection rates have been really low and really well managed. Um, but there's lots of lessons to learn, as you know, when there's any sort of crisis like this. So, but I think mm. we've mm. we've been lucky. We've been very lucky mm. as a country and as a community. Mm. And as a, yeah, um, Victoria today actually we've just had our restrictions uh, tightened again. We've had some more cases, but. Um, oh. That was going to happen um, anyway. We knew that. Uh, to, to be expected, yeah. Um, Dazza uh, Martin has asked, um, has said one of the things I love, I loved about working in, in community as a male nurse was being able to talk men's business. Oh, great. You um, need more Dazzas in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's another one we've got? 
Margaret, uh, thanks for asking this question. Uh, can you speak about the inclusion of First Nations cultural awareness in all under and postgrad nursing courses as a means for nurses to be better equipped to help mm. close the gap? Um, I think we're doing pretty good at this, um, especially in the undergrad space. I know there's some good programs in the postgrad, but I'm more familiar with the undergrad. Uh, I think a part of the struggle is the consistency in the way it's been taught. So one thing I've seen a lot of is there's not enough Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander academics teaching the curriculum. Um, so it's reliant on non-Indigenous people, and that's sometimes an issue in the way it's communicated as well. Um, I think for postgrads, there needs to be more, same as with the undergrads. Um, there's a National Aboriginal Trust Australia the Health Curriculum Framework now, which provides guidance on what should be taught, how it should be taught, how it should be assessed. And I really encourage people who are in that academic space to refer to that. Um, the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Accreditation Council has done a lot of work to make sure that curriculum is there, but it's the way it's being taught as well. Um, I think a big issue for Australia is it's not taught in school. So the black history of Australia isn't a part of the school curriculum. Some states and territories do a little bit, but it's not enough. So when kids are coming into uni and even mature age students, they often don't know a lot of the history and a lot of the culture. Um, so I think that's, the unis are doing a lot more than they're doing in secondary school. Um, but, yeah, there's a long way to go with that. And that's, I guess, one of my challenges for the nurses that are online and that see this is go out and challenge yourself to learn more of that history, even if it's just going to an art show or watching a film. Um, you know, we had Australian Dream last year, the story of Adam Goods. It's a yep. really good movie to watch because it really gives you an insight into his journey but also some of the broader Australian contemporary issues. We've got so many amazing Indigenous films coming out. So if you get an opportunity to go watch a film or go to an art show or just that's do so some cool. reading, I'd encourage you to yep. do it because that's a way to learn more. But I think as an undergrad, you do get quite a bit of content now and it's very good content. So yep. I think that lived experience is really important. Like, I don't know, for me, I can read a book. I love books, they're great, but talking to a real-life person is pretty phenomenal, you know. So if you get that opportunity to sit down next to someone and hear their story and they want to share it, then do that, take that opportunity. You know, a lot of the old people and the elders want to tell you those stories about what it was like for them. Um, but we've got more content coming out. SBS and ABC are always doing great programs. You know, get online, there's heaps on, I mean, some of the videos on YouTube aren't good, but there's some good ones there. Um, but, yeah, just get involved. Like, I see stuff all the time. Um, there's some, been some great programs lately, you know, and I'm expecting with the Black Lives Matter that there'll be more programs coming out about what's going on. But, yeah, just get yourself out there and ask questions and learn. A, a question that sort of goes off this is, is there cultural blindness in in health and nursing and is teaching, is just teaching cultural awareness uh, at the undergrad level for healthcare professionals, is that a just, is that enough? Or, yeah, so that's sort of the question. Yeah, I think that um, there is, I don't, I wouldn't say it's cultural blindness. I just think people are just, I don't know, I think they're getting more aware, but then they're feeling a bit powerless because they're like, what can I do? Mm. You know, how can I be a better nurse or a better clinician? Um, I mm. think that is 
we've done cultural training for a long time and I still see gaps. I still see, even with COVID, there was the odd racist incident where people were being judged, you know, when they got in, went in for screening or why you're here sort of thing. Um, mm. I don't think that's because people have got any malice or hard feelings. I just think it's, um, you know, not being aware and being, you know, um, not thinking a bit different, I suppose. So I think for me the challenge is you can do cultural awareness training and it's really important you do that and you need to know about what's going on in the community. But how do you change your own behaviours and your own beliefs and your own values? Because what I guess cultural safety teaches is that it's not just about your ethnicity, it could be about your sexuality or your gender or whatever it is. But as a clinician, I've got to reflect on where I sit and who I am and then how I use my own values, attitudes and beliefs to look at others. So it's really important. I think we all know how to do self-reflection that when you're in a particular scenario to go away and think, how could I have done that different? You know, what did I do? Was that family happy with the care I gave? Did I ask them if they felt safe in that encounter? Um, so for me, you can do all this learning and training and education, but it's really about the practical stuff. How do I sit in front of someone who's different to me, whether it is about race or gender or whatever, and make them feel safe? What do I need to do to do that? And I think the biggest thing I say to people when I do the workshops is, it's all about listening and being respectful. And that doesn't matter where you come from. If you're a good listener and you show respect, the patients will give you that back and the families will as well. Um, yes, we've got patients and families that have got mental health issues and other things, drug and alcohol issues going on. And, you know, I don't tolerate violence at all. You know, no violence is allowed. But most families, when they do get aggressive, it's because they're frustrated and they're not feeling heard and they're feeling invisible. Yep. And if you start unpacking that and sit down and just, you know, treat them with respect, but they have to respect you back, then that's really important, I think, to build that relationship. But I think training on its own isn't going to solve um, no. the challenges that we have, you know. I mean, it's it's going to help with the interpersonal racism, but I guess there's also, mm -hmm. I know, 50% of it is also the institutional and structural racism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the racism within the services themselves. Um, so it's an important role, but I think uh, it's only part of it um, to stop the, you know, racism actually occurring. This is sort of a little bit <clears throat> different, but I know you you're a passionate research nurse. Um, what is restorative health? <clears throat> um, I think we've been, I think we try and do restorative health. So um, it's about when someone leaves our health service or our hospital and what happens after in terms of their health to get them back, I guess, to their optimal health and well-being. Um, and we sort of do this in discharge planning. And I think one of the things I would say to all the nurses online and that see this is that I mean, you need to know what services are available in your community, you know, what is out there in terms of the primary health care context as well. Because the part of restorative health is not only getting someone through their illness or their disease and discharging, and it's making sure that they continue on what's needed to get themselves back um, to um, being a healthy individual again and get yep. themselves back to work or whatever it is they do. Um, and I think as nurses, we have an important role to play in this. And I think we do focus a lot, like we said before, on the disease or the illness and caring in the medical way but we don't often think about what happens when they leave the door oh, and how do they get care closer to home 
so they can return to whatever their life looks like, you know, and mm. it's hard to define for everybody. But I think as nurses, we have an important role to play in that, you know, into that planning and into that getting them back and linked up with the services that can give them the care that they need or the support or whatever it is. Um, and we try to do that, but we're so busy doing other stuff. And I guess something I always did when I was on the floor was discharge planning started from admission. It wasn't something you just mm. thought about on the last day. You should be planning yep. it the whole way through. I think now with the turnover and the moving, it's harder because we don't have that continuity of care with patients and we might be caring for multiple people in a week. But, you know, as much as we can, start talking to patients and saying, what do you need when you get home? You know, do you have proper food? Do you have a doctor nearby? You know, how do you get care? And starting those conversations so then if we're aware of things that are available in their community, maybe we need to look at these other things. So mm, it's important. Okay. That's really, that sort of sums up one up. Look, the next few questions are a little bit all over the place. But That's okay. You know what? Let's, let's do it. Let's, let's, do it. let's do it. So 2020 is the, as we all know, the World Health Organization's year of the midwife and nurse. Mm. What is your stance on the focused celebration of Florence Nightingale? Yes, bless you. Florence. I love Florence. Um, <laughs> I think what made me sad this year, well, one is I think 2020 may get rolled into 2021 because of everything that's happened and we haven't had time for celebration. But I've just, I respect Florence Nightingale and what she did and I totally value her contribution to our profession. But my sadness this year was why do we keep going back to Florence? Like why can't we celebrate our leaders and our, you know, community and who we are? And I guess as a black nurse for me that includes our traditional healing and birthing stuff that's happened for 60, 70, 80,000 years before I came along. Um so why can't we put ourselves front and centre rather than always linking back to a historical figure who, yes, did a lot for our profession, but for me we should be celebrating our contemporary leaders and people that are here now um, who are making a real difference. I mean, we've got some phenomenal nurse researchers. We've got some phenomenal stories around traditional birthing and healing. You know, we should be celebrating that. So I guess for this year what we've been doing um, and what I've personally been doing is trying to raise the profile of our black nurses and midwives because we're not only nurses and midwives, we're also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and that brings value to the system. So about getting a platform and getting those voices out there. Um, I absolutely support what the WHO have said and I think nurses and midwives need to be recognised and more valued in the policy space, in government, in everywhere we can get our voices in because we have a lot of value to add to the system and we have a lot of expertise and I think sometimes we're the quieter voice because we're always there busy doing our work. Um, we forget how much power we have as a collective um, profession mm. And we should use that power for our benefit, you know. So because who's the one who's sitting by the bedside all the time listening to patients? We know a lot of stuff that we need to use in a political way to get our voices out there. Um, but I, I'm absolutely with what the WHO intent was. It's around raising the profile and raising our image. And I think sometimes we're the forgotten professions that just get on and do it, you know. So mm. Florence, I love her, but yeah, she did. Um, 
do some research in the Aboriginal health space um, and she also wrote some things that were, yeah, questionable. So, so okay. Um, this is, once again, like I said, not related to that one. But uh, so I believe you've got some cops in the family. Oh, I have, so. yes. <laughs> um, so uh, this is, I guess, a topical question, but do you think the disproportionate criminalisation of Indigenous youth leads to a mistrust of the border system, in particular the health system? Mm, I think our young people are really struggling and I don't think this is just an Australian thing. I think it's a worldwide thing. Anyone who comes from a different background culturally um, struggles with any sort of, I guess, organisations and institutions, and the police are no different. Um, I was thinking today of a young guy, I don't know if any of you would be aware of, a young guy called Elijah who lived in a town called Kalgoorlie in the goldfields of West Australia and a fairly racist town but has a big Aboriginal population. Um, Elijah was accused of stealing a motorbike from a local non-Aboriginal guy and there was a bit of an altercation and it was questionable whether the police told him where to find Elijah or whether he found him himself. But he ended up um, running uh, running him over and killing him and he didn't even have the bike. And this guy got like a sentence, but it wasn't a huge sentence for what he had done. Um, but Elijah was only 14 and that for me is what's sad about our youth is that they're over-represented in the justice system um, and I think they do have a mistrust. So I genuinely have the same fear, and I'm sure all people do, when police pull me over, I am really petrified. And I think some of that's from trauma in childhood. Um, and I haven't even done anything wrong. Do you know what I mean? But you just have that fear of police. And I think we've got to have a fear yep. of police because they have a role to play. But how do we get our young ones to say, you know, you might have, you know, uncles been in jail auntie, whoever, that's their whole life. But that doesn't have to be the road for you. What's another road that you could go on that's going to be more positive? Um, getting educated is really important, finishing school, going to university, going to TAFE, whatever it is, to bring you, pull yourself out of that, um, the pit of despair, I guess, that people get into and they get caught up with. Um, and our young people have a real innate trust of authority. I think it's a teenager thing as well. Like we don't trust adults when we're teenagers. Um, but mm. especially our Aboriginal and Torres Strait young people are really struggling um, with the system. And I guess everyone saw that video of that young guy being brought down to the ground in Sydney there. Um, yeah. There's a lot of issues going on and there's a lot of work being done to try and sort that. Um, my two cousins that are both police officers, um, they do a really great job. Um, and I guess we just need more Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in the police force as well. Um, but we also need to educate our youth that there's other roads to go on, you know. Um, going to jail is not not a good thing, yeah. So how do you get them on another road? Especially when they live in a small town like Elijah did, you know, where pretty much just being a naughty kid um, can get you into a lot of trouble and how do we get those kids on a different road, whether it's through sport, whether it's through education? You know, how do we get them engaged in the system? And there is that direct correlation between justice and health because a lot of the prisons, um, you know, people who are in prison have mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues, 
um, and other issues, health issues going on. But how do we get them out of that system and transition back into society and feeling like they're part of a society and feeling like they have value and they're seen and their voice is heard? Um, and kids get targeted all the time. And it is a thing when you go into a store, if you are of a different race, you do get followed around by security and it does happen. And, like, I have this argument with my fair-skinned friends and they're like, no, it doesn't. And I'm like, yes, it does. Not and I will them. actually walk yeah. out of a store if someone follows yeah. me. Like, I just, mm. I won't do it. Um, mm. But their young people are seeing that all the time, like no one trusts us. And I think the Australian Dream story and hearing Adam's story what made our community really sad is that no matter how good he was, he still got treated badly by Australia. And I think that's terrible. And kids look up to Adam. He's a hero in our community. But then you see all that booing and the terrible behaviour that happened towards him. And kids then feel torn, you know. They're like, oh, well, Adam's my hero. But the rest of Australia, you know, this small minority, I guess, don't see how good he is and what he brings to society and that affects kids, I think, you know. They need yeah. those role models and those heroes to look up to and what I do a lot is go into schools and talk about different pathways and I'll take some of the young male nurses with me because I'm a woman and, and I'm getting older yeah. now so I take some of the younger girls as well to share yeah, their yeah. story because they were like those kids in school, didn't know what to do, didn't have a pathway and I think, that's where promoting nursing and midwifery is a really good way to get them interested in health and also wanting to help their community as well. So, And that goes exactly to Daz's next question, which was how do we encourage more Indigenous people to take up nursing? You know, mm -hmm. And I guess another question I've got for you is <clears throat> do you find that a lot of Indigenous nurses burn out quite quickly and they leave the profession? Big time, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and why is that? Yeah. yeah. So I think... One of the ways I've always said to get more of our people into nursing and midwifery um, is uh, just around getting the stories out there of people who've done the pathway and now practising. So sharing those stories. So we've done quite a bit of work on creating like pathways booklets for community where they've got images of um, different Aboriginal people who've or Torres Strait Islander who've gone through and got a career. Um, sharing those positive stories like. I don't know, sharing, like even doing this, you know, um, maybe there might be someone watches, they tell a friend and then they share that story. Um, <clears throat> I think, oh, back to your other question, uh, I think it's it's difficult because people don't know the pathways into nursing and midwifery, and I see this even with mainstream kids. They don't understand what an enrolled nurse is versus a registered versus a midwife, you know, there's a yep. lot of confusion. And then how do you get into that? What subjects do you need? So that real practical help I think is really important in school as well. Um, I certainly help a lot of family friends who are interested in nursing but don't know the pathways the and just guide them through that process. Um, and I think it's just having those role models, you know, out there who promote it. I go into schools a lot and talk about my journey and what it was like being a country kid and then you know, coming back. But getting them back into community as well is a challenge. Um, there's an, a big issue around retention of our nurses and midwives and I've just started a bit of research um, to look into that. What's going on? Why are we not retaining? So we're getting a lot of Aboriginal Torres Strait grads into the system. They're doing about two or three years and then they're burning out. 
okay. then they're going off and doing other jobs and some of them are going into community health, which is a good thing. But um, yeah. some of them are going into other professions altogether and I want to understand what that is and I don't have the answers yet because no one's really done that research. I suspect, okay. um, and I'm one of the few that did 18 years straight, I suspect that there's some issues going on within that. Um, a lot of grad nurses aren't staying in our profession and I think that's a big worry for us as well. Um, what's going on? Is it about that you go through uni, you get your degree, which is a massive achievement, and then you go, mm, maybe I don't want to work shifts. You know, maybe it's the shift work, maybe it's the night duty, maybe it's the pay, maybe it's um, not feeling valued in the system. Like there's something there. I think we've got to do a bit of work to explore what that is. Um, we've started sort of doing some interviews with, I guess, some early career nurses and midwives just to explore what's going on for them and why. Um, some of it's racism as well, you know, from the other staff. Um, my space, I'm a paediatric nurse. Um, we tend to get a lot of older nurses, and I'm in the old category, but I'm like the older, um, you know, where they don't treat our younger nurses properly, you know, they're yeah. disrespectful. Like nurses do eat their young, and that's a problem, and that's not something to be proud of. That's something for us to be ashamed of and do something about. So... I think that sort of stuff, and I'm a big person for mentoring. I've been mentoring nurses for years. You know, I've looked after Irish nurses, English nurses, whoever, um, because I don't believe, I don't ever want to be known as a nurse that eats too young because I think that's disgusting and we should be ashamed of that. So a big push for me is to say once they're in the system, how can we help? How can we support grads? And I'll look after any grad, I don't care who they are, to get them through whatever's going on for them, you know. So we are doing some research to explore what that is and we will be publishing an article in the next couple of months and we'll probably share that through you, Jackson, to get to your members. Yeah, please do. Talk about it, yeah. I think that would create some good so. discussion as well because it's not just Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander no. nurses. The things that you find will probably reflect uh, the oh, profession more widely. Yeah. yeah. There's a big um, piece of work done. In, in um, the United States about retention of grad nurses as well and they found a lot of the issues I think will be similar we we're going to find as well. So. Yeah. Um, so the National Aboriginal and Islanders Day Obs Observance Committee, which is this yeah. top I'm wearing. Yeah, um, yeah <laughs> it's a cool top. Um, is an observance in Australia lasting from the first Saturday, uh, sorry, first Sunday in July until the following Sunday. And we were actually planning to interview back then, but that didn't work. Didn't um, no, and it still celebrates Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, culture, and so the achievements of the community. So uh, this is my second last question, um, the, and um, we'll probably wrap it up. But what should we do to celebrate the achievements um, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses uh, more often? getting a bit more of a profile now I don't know the last three years um through the Hester Nursing for Excellence Awards we've had um winners which is great a couple of midwives and one of the nurses as well one which is fantastic um I think um this year there's been a lot of work through the Australian College of Nursing in the Hive magazine we've done a couple of articles about some of our nurses um, and same with the ANMJ as well. Just trying to do those mm. stories to tell that contrasting story against, you know, International Year of the Nurse and Midwife, but also 
um, share some of our achievements as well. Um, I think it's just about getting our images out there. I try and um, get in the newspapers, in the mainstream papers, and on NITV did a bit of a campaign um, just to thank all of our um, health professionals, all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ones. So how do we sort of shift that into mainstream? Uh, NAIDOC Day will be very different, or NAIDOC Week will be very different this year because of COVID and we can't have big community gatherings. But NAIDOC Week is our biggest week of the year when we do showcase the work that we do as nurses and midwives and as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, I think just being aware of who's around you, like if you're working in a big hospital or a particular ward or an area, ask those questions. Who are our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff? You know, do we, most hospitals have an Aboriginal liaison service now. Get to know them. Um, but get put that support out there. Like even if you're at uni or whatever, find out who's around you, you know, get to know the other people that you're studying with or you're working with. Um and just recognise that, you know, you have a role to play, even if you're not Indigenous, you still have a role to play in caring for yep. our patients and families and um, get yourself educated and ask lots of questions. And sometimes you're going to get it wrong and it's not a bad thing, you know, and um, there's a lot of us out there who will help you, you know, and certainly I help a lot of people when there's different scenarios where they need advice or whatever. But, yeah, just recognise that we're out there, we're not invisible. We might not look exactly how you think we should look, you know, maybe our skin's not that dark, but we still identify and we're still proud of our culture and, you know, it'd be great to have our non-Indigenous nurses and midwives on our side as well. And let's all work together, I think, to make a better system and, you know, we're a good country and, yes, there's racists, but they're everywhere, you know, you're never going to get rid of them. But, um, you know, let's work together as one and make this a better country and a better health system. I think there are some very strong words. And if you had a final message, um, what would you like to give? Sorry, if you had a final message to, to give to nurses about caring for Indigenous groups, um, yeah. what would that be? I think... Um, I, guess, I you, guess you just, yeah. Yeah, look, you're going to get it wrong. Nobody's perfect. I think if you come in with that respect and you are um, a good listening listening you know take that time to listen and be comfortable with silence you know silence is a good thing and I think we always want to be helping and talking as clinicians but you know being okay with just sitting and being and that's where I said at the beginning about mindfulness I think it's a really important skill to have um, because sometimes we need to just sit still with patients and families and just listen and hear what they have to say um, but showing respect and understanding that sometimes you don't understand what's going on but wanting to look at it a bit different, you know, don't put your own views and your own opinions on things. Actually have an open mind and ask questions and challenge yourself to think a bit different. And I always use the example of, um, you know, with children, our kids are raised by a village. They're not raised by their parents. So when they come into hospitals, they might be doing things like jumping on the couch or running around loud. But you don't let your kids do at home. But that's a different way of raising your children and that's not a good or a bad thing. But don't put your judgment on other people if their kids are going a bit mad, you know, because you might raise your kids different. And you see that a lot in shopping centres, you know. I always feel yeah. sorry for parents when their kids are chucking a tantrum. Because I remember what that was like for me as a parent, you know, that 
Um, sometimes you raise your kids different to other people and that doesn't make them a bad parent and you're a good parent, but just do it different. So I think just be mindful that sometimes we put our own opinions and beliefs on other people and that's not a good thing. So Consciously and unconsciously. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that wraps it up. I think we've touched on uh, a myriad of great sort of yeah. themes and uh things that I think people are going to get something from. Um, I hope everyone who's been watching and who's listening in the future enjoyed it. And I think uh, there's a lot to take um, from what Melanie's talked about. Um, yeah, I, I have no further words, but to say a massive thank you to you for coming along and uh, hopefully sharing. I mean, I can't, I did look in and I couldn't find uh, an Aboriginal nurse who had spoken just, you know, um, to the to the to a broader Australian nursing community, um, and to allow that conversation. So th I think this is potentially the first that's happened. I think we need to do this more. So we might see more of Melanie in the future, if uh, if I can convince coerce onto the show. <laughs> Great, thank you, Jackson, and thank you, everyone. It's been a pleasure, and I'm happy to come back in time and do particular subjects or whatever you need. Just let me know. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, no problem. Thank I'll speak to you after, okay? Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>